What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 5 of season 3 of So What, hosted by your gal and pal, Isabella Rosner. As this episode comes out on Thursday, November 25th, I just want to say Happy Thanksgiving to all American listeners. And also not American listeners, if you're into that. I hope you all have lots of delicious pumpkin pie. What a day to be grateful for family and health and love and historic needlework, am I right? Although, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for historic needlework every day. Anywho, today's episode is an interview with Elizabeth Parker, a specialist in historic rugs and carpets. I am absolutely hyped, because before this interview, I knew, like, literally nothing about rugs or carpets. I appreciated them and thought they were nice, and I enjoyed standing on them, but I really did know absolutely nothing. So not only is this an excellent learning opportunity, it is also a thrill because no other episode of So What has gotten even close to getting near rugs and carpets. Obviously, most rugs and carpets are not needleworked per se, but like with my past episodes about knob bending and Navajo weaving, I wanted to expand beyond just embroidery and sewing and to look at various textile arts that involve a similar relationship between maker and material. So yes, many rugs and carpets are not stitched per se, but I do think there are lots of connections to be made between those objects and everything else examined on this pod. So yeah, exciting. Before I tell you more about Elizabeth, the guest today, quick venture into social media stuff. Images of all the fabulous rugs and carpets Elizabeth and I discuss can be seen at So What Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And images, sources, and various other goodies are on the podcast website at sowhatpodcast.com. And we have a Patreon, too. Delight, delight. Do you like how short I made that paragraph today? You're welcome. Okay, back to the topic at hand. Elizabeth Parker is an independent consultant and appraiser who has 25 years of experience in the field of rugs and carpets. She specializes in carpets from Iran, Turkey, India, China, the Caucasus, and Europe. Between 1996 and 2017, she was the Vice President, Senior Specialist, and International Head of the Rugs and Carpets Department at Christie's in New York City. So impressive! Love that. During her tenure, Christie sold some majorly impressive carpets, including a record-breaking $4.4 million sale of a Louis XV Savonnerie carpet, the Doris Duke 17th century Isfahan rug for $4.9 million, and the record for a Chinese Ming carpet for over $650,000. Elizabeth was also a guest specialist on Antiques Roadshow from 1999 to 2002, which is high-key, like very high-key, my dream. So yes, clearly Elizabeth knows her stuff. It's an absolute honor to learn about rugs and carpets from someone who knows so much about them. And without further ado, here's the interview. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. I am incredibly excited to talk to you. I know nothing about rugs. This is going to be such an adventure for me in a good way. Like I am, I just feel like I'm going to learn a lot today. So thanks. So I hope I can impart some wisdom on rugs. How did you become an expert in the field of antique rugs and carpets, especially of those rugs and carpets from places like Iran, Turkey, India, China, the Caucasus, and Europe? 
So I always like to say that the field sort of found me rather than me finding it. You know, I was originally a French major at Colby College in Maine. And while I was spending my junior year abroad in France, I took that opportunity just to travel around with my URL pass and just went to museum after museum after museum. And I realized like, I think I actually really want to pursue a career more in art history than in French. I didn't really want to be a French teacher. So then I graduated with a double major. I kind of quickly did added art history. And then after college, I did the Sotheby's Works of Art course, which is in London. Um, And that where you cover both fine and decorative arts. I mean, I've always loved other people's stuff. Like I like you know, I love paintings, but I'm always drawn, like if we go to a museum, I'm always drawn to the stuff. So unfortunately, the course didn't cover rugs at all. So I still had no awareness of them at that point. But we did cover tapestries. Um, And so but during that year, my focus was actually silver. And which is, you know, I loved it. And I, you know, uh, kind of studied the, the similarities between Paul Revere, an American and Hester Bateman, who was an English silversmith and fantastic. And I still love silver. And I just, I love the tactile quality of silver. I love that you can hold it in your hand and mm-hmm. it's, it's so functional, but it's so beautiful. And just so much care is taken into the making of it. So then after that course, I went back to San Francisco where I'm from. And I was in an entry level position at the auction house there. It's called Butterfield and Butterfield. And, and now it's part of Bonhams. So then there was an opening in silver. So then I did both departments for a while. And then I had to decide and I picked carpets. I realized like I love color and I love pattern. You know, silver is great, but I do love pattern. Um, And so then after about three years, I moved to Christie's and and I was there for 21 years and um, was the department head there. And again, like just saw so much. And so I guess I never really call myself an expert because more of a specialist in the area because you're just you're you're so um you're just bombarded by so many different types of things and you don't have the luxury of time like in a museum setting where you have the object it's in your collection and you can live with it Mm -hmm. for a long time at most I would have three weeks or four weeks to live with an object and you know deep dive into it and figure you know kind of position it and put it, be able to put it in context. So I was never able to really deep dive. I mean, over time, as you see a lot of similar works, you learn more and more and you can then make your own timeline. I guess, you know, I feel really lucky that I was able to handle so much during my career. And I think what I love the most about this field is that it just opened up a whole world to me. Every culture has a weaving culture you know, and you can learn so, so much. And some pieces are just functional and those are interesting in their own way. And then some are just purely decorative and those are also fascinating. So I love that I'm continuously learning. That is such a joy. And that is, I think also the joy of textiles is that universality. Every, you know, every, every culture exactly has weaving. Every culture has to clothe itself and decorate its surroundings. And it's so interesting to see how people come to the same conclusions using mm-hmm. the same materials and how they also come to radically different conclusions. This is a massive question, I think. Maybe it's not. But how did imagery, these motifs, these patterns move across the world to be, you know, 
turned into rugs and carpets. How how did that migration of motif happen in the rug world? Okay, that's a big question. Yes, so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. And there are a lot of different answers. Okay. Um, you know, you know, Persian carpets have such a, a reputation, and they have a, a good reputation for a reason, right? Um, and it was during Shah Abbas in the 17th century where the real there was a real artistic flourishing of manuscripts, mm -hmm. of architecture, and of carpet weaving. And it was under his auspices that that Isfahan carpets in the city they were made. And I should pause here um, that most carpets, particularly mm -hmm. Persian carpets, take on the name of the city or the village in which they were woven, uh -huh. or they take on the name of the nomadic tribe that wove them. And we'll get to the nomads in a moment. But first, cool. we'll talk about court court workshops. Okay. And the biggest one in the 17th century were Isfahan's and they were made for the court. They were made um, for the nobility and they were made as diplomatic gifts. And that's the key to answer your question is that they were then sent to England. They were sent to Italy. They weren't around. And at that time, those cultures didn't really have a weaving culture. So they're the main pile woven rugs, at least sophisticated pile woven rugs, mm -hmm were all imported from Iran. And at one point, if you get into the history of Axminster, mm -hmm. they, they called it turkey work. And yes. the same thing you say in Ottoman, you know, the Ottomans also sent their, their rugs, their Ushak medallion carpets as diplomatic gifts. And the English then took those as their prototypes and imported weavers, Turkish weavers, to come and help them weave. And so that was one way that designs got transferred at a very high level. You'll see very early Axminster or English carpets um, that look like a medallion Ushak carpet, but they're not. They have a, just a different feel. They have a very similar design, but the weave is slightly different and the quality of the wool, the local wool is just very different. And the dye, the dye stuffs are different. That is so interesting. The influence of rugs, I had for some reason never made this connection, but the influence of those rugs became an influence in needlework. So right, right around the end of the 17th century, all of a sudden women are doing this turkey work, right? They're doing turkey stitch exactly. to create this real like heavy pile kind exactly. of work that, ah! Exactly, it's all related. <laughs> all happening in my brain right now. Thank you so much, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that. And then there's the aspect of, say, the Silk Road, where, mm -hmm. as we all know, things were transferred back and forth. And that was a really a, a serious way of, of designs and techniques of getting transferred from culture to culture. Totally. And then you have the nomads, particularly in Iran, who were, you know, they made obviously functional pieces, saddlebags, um, beautiful um, trappings for their camels or their horses. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, because they're nomads, they're traveling around and some mm -hmm. would then end up in, you know, area of what is now Turkey. And so designs and techniques also would be transferred that way. Okay. It is nice that you are basically reaffirming my idea that it is Persian rugs that have the biggest reputation. And sure. that seems to be, have been the case for many hundreds of years. How did that happen? Like, what are the origins of the Persian rug being peak rug culture? I think it goes back to what we were talked about before with under Shah Abbas and the 17th century carpets, you know, these Isfahan carpets, they have a red ground, 
They're very <laughs> elegant. They have sort of this spiraling tendrils and palmettes. They're extremely elegant and they're very finely woven. And I think with them being disseminated as diplomatic gifts all over the world, they, yeah. they did get this reputation and rightly so as being, you know, extremely well-made. Um, so much so that like India then asked Iran, can we under um, Shah Jahan, in the, also in the 17th century, he had Persian weavers come to India to teach them how to make carpets. And in the Mughal period, the Mughal carpets have a similarity to Persian carpets, but they're just, the wool again is a slightly different and the color, the dyes are a little bit different, but the design conceit is, is fairly similar. You know, I think it started in the 17th century, if not before. I mean, you know, so few carpets are extant from the 15th, 16th century, but but they but they do exist and fragments certainly exist. And the quality and the sophistication is is unbelievable. I mean, when you you know, you think in general, you think of the 15th century, 16th century as not being that sophisticated, but yikes, it's it's really you know, some of the things that I, of fragments are incredible, just even as a fragment. And imagine if you saw the whole carpet. I actually can't believe that at no point in at in my thinking at any point was I like, oh, yeah, carpets are probably also tied into this kind of like 17th century, real burgeoning global trade, which is something I think a lot about in not only needlework stuff, but also my PhD, which is about kind of Quaker women's art more generally. Quakers were way into the global trade. So I've ended up having to think a lot about how people were engaging with each other and the world was expanding in a way it never was before. So of course, carpets were part of this. But at no point was I like, well, they should probably be involved. Oh my. And at the time, like in a household, like they were generally the most valuable thing in a home. If you look at inventories, think about the time that it takes to make them, the materials. I mean, they're really, they're time consuming and and hard to make and a mystery to so many people. So of course they're, they're valuable. Yeah. And I think that it's the same with textiles generally. It's, it's the most expensive good you have in your home. There's the most labor. It's the finest material. It's the thing you want to display the most. Yep. And I mean, rugs have a practical purpose that not necessarily all textiles have of keeping a place warm. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned archeological fragments. Is there any, knowledge or kind of conclusion that has been reached about when rug production started and where back to the beginning of civilization i mean that makes sense gotta keep warm yeah gotta keep warm clothing i mean all of that is you know for floor rugs there are some early um rugs like the i'm gonna probably say it wrong is the pasrik carpet which is in the hermitage Ah. the earliest rugs okay. that's extended and it's fragmentary but again it's so sophisticated um it's and it's sort of uh sort of this I, I don't know if we if people call that the earliest rug known rug but because there are so many fragments as you say you know just little pieces that have knots rugs first of all i use the terms rugs and carpets interchangeably Rugs are smaller, are mm-hmm. below nine by six, and carpets are bigger than nine nine feet by six feet. I've never known those specific measurements. And I often will say pile rugs because mm-hmm. they're made with a knot, right? They're not made with a needle and thread. Right. They're woven on a loom, 
could be a backstrap loom if you're nomadic. It could be an upright horizontal loom, but essentially you're tying knots around each warp thread. And then between each row of knots comes weft. Right. And pack it down. I'm, am I correct in thinking that there is no, uh, what I'm loosely terming needlework or, you know, needle and thread decoration happening in rugs? It, the decoration is exclusively made through weaving, right? Traditionally, yeah. But then you have, right, it's through weaving and they can be piled. They can also be flat woven, mm. right, where the weft is what's creating the design. Right. And you can have supplementary wefts, which augment the design that almost look like embroidery, but they're not. They're not made with a needle and thread. They're made by weaving, weaving it through, through the structure. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, as, in terms of floor coverings, yes, they're needlework carpets. Floor. Oh, yeah mainly European mm. uh, needlepoint, you know, French have, and the English have great needlepoint, 19th century Victorian era needlepoint carpets, but there are even some as early as 16th century that are primarily English. Whoa. Yeah. That my, one of my favorite rugs of needlework rugs is in the Met and it's a 16th century um, fragment of what probably was like a 15 foot long carpet. That's all needlepoint. And um, it was meant for the table. You can see in some early portraits of that period, there are carpets on the tables, you know, portraits yes. of people, there's a table with a carpet on it. Um, and it was probably made in house. It was probably made by the young women in the family and maybe some of the servants helped to, to make the carpet. So another important um, group of needlework carpets were actually made in London on, um, I believe it was Spring Street in London. Mm -hmm. And his name was J.M. Pontremoli. And he was working in the early 20th century and he made a group of really interesting um, needlework carpets. They were meant for the floor and they're kind of made in a historical style and they're very floral and they sort of look like a needlework on the floor. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about rugs on this podcast is because even though rugs aren't needlework, technically, you're not using a needle and thread for the most part to make these rugs and carpets. I always find that there's a, a, a real tactile similarity between a needle and a thread and a much larger scale loom and weaving. There is the same engagement one, you know, you have the same engagement with your hands and your fingers and that real kind of corporeal motion. I find that even though it's on a much larger scale, it's not a tiny needle and a thin piece of thread. The, the still engagement thread, with material, still, still yarn, thread, right. Still, still yarn wool and, and dyed or undyed wool. Totally. Yeah. So I like tend to, I tend to like, I use the term needlework mostly to talk about embroidery, but I, especially on this podcast, tend to use the term needle quite loosely. So like knitting needles. And I think weaving kind of falls into that same thing. It's, it's the tool in which you, you know, handle your, your fiber. Historically, in the 17th century and kind of onwards, who, who was doing the weaving? Did it tend to be men or women, both? Sure. Um, in workshops, it was probably a combination of, of men and women. Um, and it varies from culture to culture. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I think primarily it's thought of as the women were the weavers and the men were the dyers and the ones who tended the sheep. 
Turkey has its own. We've really talked about Persia, but I, we don't. I don't want to dismiss Turkey at all because mm. they have such a rich history as well of weaving. Um, you know, there's sometimes you would go to these lectures of people who have just been to Turkey and met with weavers, and inevitably you have pictures, you know, a photograph of the men with their shepherd's crooks having a drink and sitting down. And then the next slide is the women. So historically it is a women's thing. And, you know, by, you know, in small villages and the nomadic tradition, it's, it is definitely the women who are doing the weaving. And often it's a grandmother teaching a granddaughter how to weave. They're sitting next to each other. So when you have the loom, as many people as can fit shoulder to shoulder as the width of the rug, that's how many people are weaving the rug and you have, and it's a very delicate balance because you all have to keep in sync. Right. And so sometimes you'll see a village rug that's a little bit wonky where one side looks perfect and then the other side has some little errors, weaver errors, which are fun, I think. Yeah. Um, but it, you can see like, oh, it's two people sitting side by side, one more expert than the other, sort of a, a teaching rug. And there's something so... Um, Charming and powerful, I think, about the fact that it's it was largely women creating these objects um, that became, at least in their initial form, kind of like a diplomatic gift and that yeah. traveled the world. There is something um, kind of poignant about the fact that these women, you know, at, on a very basic level to simplify it perhaps too much, you know, they did not have great opportunities. Right. But... And, and they couldn't travel, obviously, who was traveling in the 17th century, not huge amounts of people. But, you know, they were limited to their own bubble, to their own world, but their their art, what came from their hands traveled around the world. And certainly in the 19th century and in some of these small villages in, in Iran and, and in Turkey, they were the breadwinners. I mean, they were really the ones bringing, you know, making the money for the family. The men were drinking the beer. With, yeah. their, with, their, <laughs> with their sheep. What is your favorite needleworked object or textile object in general? You're not necessarily operating on just needlework stuff. So got to open it all up to you. Yeah, such a tough question. Um, I mean, generally when I was at Christie's, my favorite works were those that I was selling. You know, I would it's have there, a favorite yeah. <laughs> in every sale and it just sort of depended on my mood and it would vary from, from type um, you know, sometimes it was a French carpet that I was really into, or sometimes it was a Persian carpet. It just sort of depended what caught my eye at that mm -hmm. moment. So, so, I mean, those were usually my favorites. I mean, most recently I was involved with a sale and it was record-breaking sale, a 17th century Ming carpet, Chinese carpet wow. that once belonged to Louis Comfort Tiffany. <gasps> How cool. Very cool. It had such an interesting history, which we don't have time for it, like deserves its own podcast. It's an amazing carpet. Wow. Um, and that was sort of my quarantine research project or one of my quarantine research projects. And it was nice because I had the luxury of time to actually really deep dive into this one. Um, and it was large. It was 32 feet by 23 feet. And at one time it was even larger. <gasps> It was, it had been sewn back together, very skillful. Oh. Um, and it was, it's the most beautiful carpet. It has this beautiful golden yellow field color in both the field and the border with this lotus blossom repeat. It was, yeah, that was such a delight to sell. And now it has, it's in a happy home. Um, okay. uh, yeah. 
It's in, in Asia. That's a good, Asia that's a good one. Also, yeah. how cool that it started off in China. Like it started off in Asia, came to um, like America, America, right? Crossed the world yeah. to get to the United States and then went back to Going its back. home. Yeah, which is really nice. That is nice when that happens. That, um, you know, and there's definitely some Middle Eastern museums who are buying back Persian carpets, which is wonderful as well. Do love to see it. I mean, there a different podcast episode is should probably be about kind of the restitution of art, but like definitely. that is that is a lovely, very wholesome story. What a really good. That's a solidly good pandemic project. Yeah. And I had another good pandemic project for whatever reason. Christie's got a lot of these Axminster carpets, mm-hmm. which are English. And these ones were all period. There were 17th century, 18th century Axminster carpets. Um, and we had a, an amazing one from 1790. That's called the Stradbrook um, Axminster carpet. It has its own name. Ooh. And it was designed most likely by James Wyatt for Hemingham Hall in Suffolk. How cool! And it's it's just class, just neoclassical perfect. It's, oh. it's and in an amazing condition. That's a great selection. I mean, that really shows the breadth and influence of rugs and carpets on the world. So I'm going to ask the question that I ask everybody, but I am going to alter it slightly for you to make it a bit more broad, if that's okay. So what do you think the role of needlework and textiles more generally is in today's world? Well, I guess I think anything handmade, whether it's a basket, a needlepoint pillow, a sampler, a rug woven on a loom has immense value in today's world. You know, I think the global supply chain issues we currently have are a good wake up call to buy and make things yeah. local. I mean, we, I just feel like that whole movement to slow your life down is a good one. And I think on a personal level, taking the time to make something with your hands is so satisfying for the soul. Mm-hmm. It is the, it's like the deliberateness. There, yes. you know, there is an aspect of control that I feel like I talk about a lot on this podcast, but there is like a real, you have to be deliberate and conscious about every step in your making process. Exactly. And, you know, mistakes, mistakes happen. And sometimes like, particularly with rugs, mistakes are, are what give it its charm. Totally. And then for, as for antique rugs, I mean, I think that they should be cherished and applauded for their eco-friendly attributes. You know, new rug production sadly accounts for a lot for the majority of textile waste. And so buying an antique rug to use on your floor is a green way to go. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's recycling at its best and well-made antique rugs are so sturdy and have a ton of life in them and can take a lot of abuse and a busy pattern hides spills and stains. And, you know, I personally love a rug with some wear and tear. I mean, it shows its age, it has character and it's unique to me. Um, and no one can say they have the, they bought the same one. That's true. And I, I mean, yeah, I hadn't thought about the real eco aspect of that, but that's true. I'm going to go out and try to find an antique rug. In addition to it being super eco-friendly, again, it's, I, for some reason, I find it very charming. The the person aspect, this, this idea that this antique rug has been keeping people warm and cozy for decades and centuries. Yes. Yes. Like 
that is sort of the temporary custodian of it really yeah that you're just like one step on its kind of many many centuries long life it's it's the same thing with the carpet it's that it's like <laughs> you're just you're one chapter in this really fascinating and complex book of a carpet's life and finally last question how can people learn more about your work and do you have anything you'd like to promote sure um so i do say like having you know been in an auction world for 21 years 21 plus years um i think they're a great place to learn because you know, they shouldn't be intimidating, one. Mm-hmm. And two, you can go in and you can touch and feel the rugs, unlike in a museum. Love that. And the tactile aspect of carpets is really important. I mean, that's just by touching, you can get like a sense of the quality of the wool and even the fineness of the weave. And I think that way too, you can create your own relationship between like what, what you like, like the more you see and the more you handle, you can make your own connections about what you like and what to you makes a great carpet. Um, you can also, you know, creating a relationship with a trusted dealer or a consultant like me um, is another way to, to learn more. Um, you know, books are great to a certain degree, but these really need to be touched and in it with your fingers. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, try to get those opportunities um, where you can touch and handle things. Um, and then I'd say like with the pandemic, there are so many organizations that offer Zoom lectures on rugs. Um, I'm involved with the Haji Baba Club, which is based in New York. And we offer monthly free Zoom lectures. Our next talk is on December 8th and it is uh, Chiara Gasparini. And she's talking about the development and evolution of the Eurasian roundel motif and textiles. So I should backtrack that we, the Hajibaba Club does both lectures in rugs and textiles. Cool. Yes. And our past lectures are recorded and available to our members. So it's easy to become a member um, and it's pretty, pretty cost effective to become a member as well. And then you have, you can go back and listen to all of our past recordings of lectures. And then I also have a fun Instagram feed called Rugs Not Drugs. And that promotes rugs that are in different upcoming auctions. I also like to show the influence of traditional rugs in fashion and contemporary art. Um, I highlight museum exhibits that have that are showing either rugs or textiles. And um, I always do like rugs in interiors and of course animals in rugs. Great, perfect. Well, this has been amazing. So like so fun, but also. I have learned more than I ever thought possible. So thank oh, you. It's been a treat for me as well. And I, I'm always eager to share my love of rugs. I mean, I think they are they are everywhere. And you, we because we walk on them, maybe we don't really think about them more than just as a floor covering, but there's so much more. Did you learn as much from Elizabeth as I did? I hope so. Our conversation left me with a lot to think about, but something I do want to conclude with is something I haven't talked about at length on this podcast, which is the role of textiles in comfort and soothing. That theme has come up a few times when I've asked people the classic question about what the role of needlework is in today's world, and in the interview episodes with Naomi Clark and Dr. Allison Main, but I think that the focus has been on the comforting nature of producing textiles rather than of the textiles themselves. 
Making textiles, and in the case of this podcast, needleworking, can give a stitcher a sense of control and calm and contentment, but I think rugs and carpets make it clear that one does not need to make the textile in order to feel comfort and pleasure from and because of it. Rugs and carpets are soothing because they're soft and warm under our feet or atop our laps or against our hands in the case of bed rugs and table carpets, but it's not just that. They can also make floors less painful to sit on, reduce sound from walking on hard surfaces, and add color or pattern to a room, and those are forms of comfort too. Obviously, sitting more comfortably on a floor is a form of that, but the ease and quietude that comes with not hearing people constantly clip-clopping and the ability to make one's space one's own are forms of comfort as well. From where I'm standing, it seems that that desire and need for ease and contentment is one of the reasons why various countries started making their own versions of rugs and carpets. I'm thinking specifically of the spread of turkey work, an embroidery technique that creates a plush pile from the 17th century onwards. I find it fascinating that once people outside of Iran and India got a taste for rugs and carpets, they wanted to replicate that soft texture everywhere, especially on chairs. There's something so charming to me about this idea that people found such joy and soothing with rugs and carpets under their feet that they needed to bring that softness and cushioning ever closer to them, to the chairs they sat on and the beds they slept in and the tables they ate at. To put it simply, it feels like the history of rugs and carpets, in addition to being the story of the universality of weaving and women's work and decoration, is tied up with chasing touchable comfort and of creating spaces of warmth, softness, and coziness. And what a good theme that is to conclude with as winter descends upon us in the Northern Hemisphere. Congrats to you all in the Southern Hemisphere with your increasingly warm weather. And yeah, on that note, that's it for me this week. I feel a lot less clueless about rugs and carpets than I did before talking to Elizabeth, and I hope you do too. As always, thanks so much for listening. Now go out, go stitch some stories, get cozy with your textiles, and to steal a pun from Elizabeth, go carpet that DM. Bye! <laughs>